0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Universities in the United States are generally staffed by two types of people, those who teach and those who manage. Professors on the one hand and administrators on the other. But a growing class of administrators has emerged. Those who blend scholarship and administration into one. My guests today, Bernhard streit and Anthony Ogden, call this new class of administrators scholar practitioners. These types of employees often hold PhDs, use research to inform their practical work in administrative offices, and contribute to scholarly debates on the internationalization of higher education. Bernhard and Anthony have recently published a co-edited volume entitled International Higher Education's Scholar Practitioners, Bridging Research and Practice, which was published this year by Symposium Books. Their book highlights the history, challenges, and personal stories of scholar practitioners around the United States. Ultimately, they argue that scholar practitioners are a valuable part of both the administrative side of universities because they incorporate theory and practice on a daily basis and contribute to scholarly debates within the field of international higher education. Bernhard Streitweiser is an assistant professor of international education at George Washington University Graduate School of Education and Human Development. Anthony Ogden is currently the Executive Director of Education Abroad and Exchanges and an adjunct professor in Educational Policy and Evaluation Studies at the University of Kentucky. In May, he'll move to Michigan State University. Bernhard Streitwieser and Tony Ogden, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You both have um, co-edited a new volume on International Higher Education Scholar Practitioners. And I'd just like to start by asking, universities are generally seen as uh, institutions that are staffed by two types of people. So professors, those who teach, and, and administrators, those who manage. Um, how is this dichotomy between these two classes of staff members in universities falling apart in a sense in front of your eyes.
2: Well, alright, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's falling apart, first of all. I, I would say that it's changing and it's not even changing very quickly, and it's been changing for for a couple of decades, uh, for a number of reasons that that Tony and I point out in, in our chapter in the book. Um and, and I would also say that we characterized two distinct camps by you know the scholars and the practitioners, but really there are more like four sort of distinct groups of stakeholders at the university, and these are faculty, upper level administrators, so provosts, deans, directors of major centers, then what Philip Altbach calls the administrative estate, which is sort of the, 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 the people who make the university function, the directors of, in, in the case of our research, study abroad and international scholar and student offices, um, mm. people who manage student life offices, um, counseling centers, you know, teaching and learning centers, and then all the staffs within those centers, and then sort of the support personnel. Um, not, I'm not talking about the janitors or people who run the, the, the dining areas, but really the, the, the sort of the workforce of the university that keep the wheels greased. Um, and then you have the students. So those four different stakeholders uh, broadly define uh, the institution, and then within that we've pointed out what we believe is a a pretty stark dichotomy between scholars, and that's one class of of people that are defined in a a very specific way, and then practitioners uh, that are defined in a different way and have different job expectations and different sort of um, areas within which they can move and and do things. Uh, And the book is about pointing out that there's great possibility and great potential in having more synergy between those two broad camps that we point out within this more complex university structure that has these four levels I pointed out. Um, But that is a a dynamic and changing environment um, with a, according to to Altbach's work, a gradually diminishing or, or quickly diminishing core research faculty group and then a much larger group of alternative academics, what Celia Whitechurch in her research calls uh, third space um, academics um, who we argue have scholarly credentials and and aspirations to do more than quote-unquote just be administrators, and I say that with the deepest respect for administrators, but who would ideally be doing more in terms of their, their, their academic and, and sort of Reflective thinking, and contributing to a wider dialogue in, the, in, in their fields, but sometimes these positions, for reasons of you know heavy workload and very very defined roles and expectations, don't give them that freedom.
1: Allow me to add to that a little bit. Um, I think this dichotomy that you mentioned, William, uh, is blurring uh, across higher education, certainly here in the United States, as you've mentioned not necessarily falling apart, but it is blurring and it's blurring more readily in certain disciplines than in others. For example, here at uh, at the University of Kentucky where I'm currently employed, I was hired primarily as an administrator, but uh, my job also requires a a PhD and 10 years of experience in higher education. That said, the College of Education, um, and I think this is similar at many colleges of education, they are starting to hire what they call clinical title series faculty, or practitioners who are out and about in the profession working, and they are being hired to come in and give this level of profession, or this professional perspective, or this view into the classroom. Um, in a a, a truly applied sense and of course colleges of education typically are more professionally oriented in that regard anyhow but I am now an applied assistant uh, faculty member in our College of Education and so in this case the boundary has been very much blurred I'm not a full-time faculty member but I'm not a full-time administrator either in that regard and I think it's from that premise and as, as uh, Bernhard was saying, that the, the the impetus for this book got started because we are looking primarily not at any one discipline necessarily, but this emerging field uh, and this uh, developing profession of international higher education. And, and it
0: seems as if there are, in a sense, the, the bulk of people who work at universities in the U.S. context, at least, um, could be considered these hybrid admin scholarly fields, um, or the, or they combine or they be, they form the hybrid. So, and it's what you call the scholar practitioner. So, how would you define that term um, in your work?
2: Let me just add before we we give the definition that we've developed. Um, there have been recent articles um, in the the sort of pre- the uh, Journals in our field, um, the, the trade papers, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and Inside Higher Ed, where people are really expressing a, a good deal of frustration uh, in their um, alternative academic positions and really asking can't this situation change in a way that would make our working life a more satisfactory one? Um, there's an article by a woman, last name of June. Uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, 2012, adjuncts build strength in numbers, the new majority generate a shift in academic culture, um, which is putting uh, a, a more recent perspective on the figures that Phil Altbach mentions in his chapter. There's also a very good um, sort of editorial by a guy with the last name of Bousquet. A PhD should, should result in a tenure-track job, not an alt-ac-1. And that's, again, expressing this frustration. And then there's um, Bickford and Wisnet, uh, a move to bring staff scholars out of the shadows, also in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Um, All these people are expressing, you know, their their interest and their desire to move out of this defined uh, practitioner space and at least get more um, access to doing scholarly work because they can't necessarily find a full-fledged you know, faculty position, but they have those those credentials and, and that, that way of thinking about their work that I think is valuable. Um, in terms of a definition, uh, Tony and I came up with one that we uh, use in the book, but it's really driven by um, the research that was done by um, Donald Schoen, Ernest Boyer, and Charles McClintock, and then our own thinking on th- this position of scholar-practitioners. And really, it's this idea that practice if it's reflective and scholarship if it's applicable can and must become conjoined activities rather than remaining separate domains and um we have a graphic in the book that shows sort of a circular movement um where international education is at the top and international education profession is at the bottom of the circle so think about the scholarly sort of part is at 12 on a dial and the practic- professional part is at six o'clock on the dial and then going around the circle, um, the, the scholars encourage international education research and scholarship, where they perform research and scholarship. Um, however, we need international education research to be utilized and applied, so we encourage practitioners to utilize research and scholarship to inform practice. And as we do so, we need to determine the focus and direction of needed research, and so we must back to the top of the circle, encourage international education research and scholarship and this continuous um, synergy between sort of the scholarly lens and the practitioner lens informing one another in, in what we believe are really productive ways. So the definition we have, uh, and this is, you know, this is the first time I believe a, a definition exists in the field of international higher education. We, we were not able to find one before. And there are other definitions from human resource research <laughs> from legal research, from uh, nurse practitioner research out there that has different definitions, some of which we find very compelling and close to ours. But the one that we came up with, it goes as follows. The scholar practitioners of international higher education are collaborative educators who engage in the research process and use and disseminate their knowledge and information in the form of concepts, procedures, processes, and skills for the benefit of those who are engaged in international education. While they do not necessarily need to maintain an active research agenda, it's important that they understand, utilize, and facilitate research directions.
1: Let, let me add to that. Thank you, Bernhard. I think it might be also important to understand what we mean by the, the field and the profession of international higher education. As Bernhard mentioned, uh, uh, various other disciplines have uh, dealt with and have defined to certain extent, scholar practitioners within those disciplines or within those particular areas. International higher education um, is a growing and it's increasingly complex uh, profession. And that that has been centrally focused on uh, global student mobility for higher education, international partnerships and linkages and so on. This is sort of the profession of international higher education and it's the profession that I've committed my career to now for nearly 25 years to to develop as a, a, a potentially moving toward becoming a recognized profession. Grown up around that has been this field of international education, where scholars have come in and said, "What are we? How are we internationalizing our campuses, our in our curriculum? How are what are our students learning when they come to uh, study here or go abroad to study and so forth? What are those learning outcomes? What are the institutional outcomes?" There's much scholarship and research, uh, in, increasingly focusing in what I'd like to describe as a field of international education. But going back to that term that you use so clearly, uh, Will, this dichotomy. So if it's true that we have a growing field of international education research and we have a growing profession of international education, how do these two inform and support each other? And that's that circular diagram that Bernhard mentioned. So if, we, if, if the goal of a scholar is to, to focus on research and, and sharing knowledge, then that knowledge needs to be uh, applied and be applicable to the profession so that we can grow our what we do for our students in our institutions and and to further enhance that 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 profession or, or that uh, process that we're engaged in but at the same time therefore we must inform the research what it is that we need to know what is it that we don't know because currently and i think all to um Pervasively, we rely on anecdote. Uh, many professionals say, this is what I think is happening. For Let me a simple example. You'll hear many who look at international education and say, you know, when American students study abroad, they really should be living with homestays because that's the best way for students to learn language and learn about the local culture, to live with homestay families. But the truth is, the research is not very conclusive to that. It doesn't show that, in fact, that by living with a homestay family in another country that they do actually show language proficiency growth or intercultural competency development and so forth. So what we need to do is to understand, to break down our own anecdote or our assumption by understanding what the research tells us, but also to contribute to uh, our questions and our guidance, if you will, to that uh, to the focus of the research and this is why scholars and practitioners have to work together but then and most importantly has has grown this cadre of these folks that we call scholar practitioners out of necessity out of determination I'm not sure but that is the focus of this book and and I'm quite excited to talk about it
0: right so there are these there are faculty members who have to produce research and you then need to have practice that is informed by that research, but then you're saying that there are this growing class of university staff members who have to do both practice making the, uh, as as Bernhard said, the, the, the grease in the wheels, wheels turn um, to get the student mobility um, to build the relationships between US institutions and institutions abroad, to internationalize the curriculum in all sorts of ways. Um, and so their job actually entails both scholarship and practice. And so they, you know, th- this, this new term um, and this new type of, uh, I guess they're ad- administrators, but really they're also more than that in many ways, or, or not more, but they're in addition to, they're also um they're also scholars but so what sort of um how have these scholar practitioners like what sort of barriers do they face in the scholarship process
1: Bernard let me let me start with that one Um, you've just described William my my current reality I'll just use myself as an example here my job as I mentioned earlier requires academic credentials I'm required to publish and I'm required to present nationally and internationally and so on. I'm required every day to work with and for and closely uh, with faculty members and deans across our institution and at other institutions. I am expected to act like and be like a faculty member for all intents and purposes. That is, the, that is the kind of the source of frustration. There are many people in international education, international higher education, that truly do uh, function in both worlds, both either out of necessity or will, or, or out of expectation. And it does create a sense of frustration. Um, and we can talk about how these people come to this point, if you'd like. But I do think that it is, a, it is a growing group of people. There are a number of uh, positions now across the United States in particular, like mine that are requiring PhDs and uh, an academic record of scholarship, um, but are not given tenure track positions, are not uh, considered for a faculty, as a faculty member necessarily when certain senior level positions come open. Now, again, I'll just use my specific case and point here. Here at the University of Kentucky, and I I shouldn't be so uh, vulgar, but I will tell you, I will never be promoted beyond the current position I am in because I am not, and almost solely because I am not a tenured faculty member. Even though I may be the most well-qualified person for such a position, now, of course, i have not tested that necessarily, but I suspect that would be the case, that they would say I'm not eligible because I'm not tenured, even though I may have far more experience and more publications and, and a, a much more ex- robust uh, record of scholarship than the person who actually gets it. But if that person is a tenured faculty member, they may actually have more of an entree than I would be in those, in those situations. Now, is that okay or not? I think it's time that uh, higher education start addressing these scholar practitioners because frankly, everybody loses when you quiet a, a, a person who's contributing to the advancement of scholarship in higher education. Um, so yeah, I think we do need to recognize the dichot- dichotomy but also recognize this, this third space as Bernhard mentioned
0: and And how is how would you propose uh, universities address this frustration um, of scholar practitioners who have limited career pathways?
1: Well, it's going to be very, very hard because there isn't. Uh, or and, it, and I think that it might be changing, changing at certain institutions but certainly at public land grants there really are those more traditional categories and it really is hard to break free of those. There are traditional faculty members and traditional posts assigned to them and it's just, it really is just going to be hard to break that down. But as we see uh, promotion and tenure process is changing across the universities and I think so too will be uh, the players that are uh, being hired into higher education. I'd like to think that higher education broadly is changing uh, in many other areas in, in in ways as well. I think this is just a matter of time and, and perseverance.
0: Do you think the, the, or the rise of the scholar practitioner, um, what does it say about the, the contemporary state of American higher education?
2: Um, that, well, that the university has become a larger space than just you know faculty teaching students that in such a tuition driven system like we have we have we are service providers to a very demanding clientele in many cases and that clientele needs an infrastructure to support them and that infrastructure is massive and requires a lot of people to run different offices and services um that will keep our clientele happy and (laughs) fee-paying To put it to put it bluntly, um, so you know I think with with the growth of the whole industry, um, this you know third estate that Altbach so rightly points out is a major factor that that has shifted uh, so many uh, sort of ideas about how education is transmitted um, and and what's all involved in um, taking someone from you know, an entering freshman to a graduating senior. And there's a lot of criticism that, you know, is college worth it? So are, are we, you know, we're charging huge, huge prices in some institutions more than others, uh, but even a lot of the privates have become incredibly expensive um, for, you know, for in-state students. And um, some of that is the infrastructure that we have to provide. You know, and uh, frankly, I think, you know, do we need such cushy sports facilities and so much money put into the academic or the athletic programs? um but that's a whole other issue that i probably shouldn't wade into (laughs) but i but i do think that has definitely influenced you know the the way the academy functions and and the people involved in making that whole machinery work
1: but also keep in mind that international higher education is also relatively new and the scholar practitioners in that emerging world of scholars and practitioners it's developing and it's an exciting time we know that global student mobility is uh, is poised for dramatic growth over the next 20 years as well as the scholarship around it. So I think it is it is still relatively new and I think this type of book is timely because it does raise the issue of scholar practitioners and our role within supporting the academic infrastructure that underpins all of international higher education.
0: It it seems to me one of the the challenges here is that these scholar practitioners, as there's more and more positions available in universities that, that bridge these two worlds, um, the, the issue then becomes how are scholar practitioners being trained?
2: Well, uh, in, in John Hutsick's chapter, he outlines um, uh, an agenda moving forward that will change the dynamic and really help. Um, the scholar practitioners to get more of a voice within their institutions. So the action agenda, and I'd like to talk about it briefly here, that he outlines, makes some really important points for moving forward. And one of them is develop masters and PhD programs um, in which core research knowledge and skills are built in. So students, you know, might be coming into a very applied program where they think they're going to be prepared to emerge as, you know, a study abroad advisor or a manager of an office, which they will, but they also need to come out with some really core research skills and an appreciation and sort of a a desire to know the research and not to be afraid of it or to shy away from statistics or, um, you know, economic facts and figures and charts and tables, but really how to use those materials to do their work better Um, So that's one of his points. Another one is to engage the professional associations. These are the the NAFSA, the Association of International Educational Administrators that Tony mentioned, um, European Association of International Educators, um, others, uh, the Forum on Education Abroad. So engage those associations in professional development of scholarship skills through workshops and fellowships that define key research agendas and topics. Uh, That's something that would, would help build This group of hybrid scholar practitioners with the skills that they'll need. And by the way, when they get these skills, in the eyes of faculty, they also take on a new persona. Faculty look at, faculty want to speak to people who speak their own language. And I think one of the criticisms faculty have of study abroad offices is. Oh, they're just, you know, glorified travel agents, which is a a terrible way to to say it. And I I think they would never admit to that. But I think sometimes the perception really is that, oh, those folks are the ones that get students out for a semester and bring them back. Um, But it's a lot of party time and and sort of frivolous fun away from parents. And that's the last thing people who actually run those offices ever want to be doing. You know, they're very serious professionals, and um, they don't like to be seen this way because it's just not an accurate picture. But if they have staff and themselves as directors can can take that research and make their case to faculty that the work they do is very serious and grounded in the research, faculty are going to look at them in a much different way because they're going to hear the language that they want to hear and engage with them on a, on a different level. Uh, Greg Light in his chapter talks about an arrested development of, of some of these fields where if we only realize the potential that, you know, people who are seen quote-unquote, only as administrators, if we realize their potential and bring them into our sphere of um, higher-level reflection and thinking and interesting work, that dynamic can change, that, that arrested development can, can be stopped, and we can uh, come up with a new paradigm, a new way of working. So he brings that out in, in a really interesting way. Um, another point back to John Hudson's action agenda is that the key journals in the field, you know, I'm thinking here of the Journal of Studies in International Education, which uh, Hans DeWitt started years ago, the, the uh, Frontiers, the Interdisciplinary Journal of Study Abroad, and Brian Whalen. Um, maybe in those journals have a research, note, research notes section uh, that highlights emergent and innovative research designs and priorities in, in internationalization uh, and study abroad and exchange written by people who work in those offices and are taking a scholarly lens to, to talk about their work then that gets published within uh, the key journals. That would be a really, really cool development for changing, again, this dynamic of where the practitioners are currently seen. And then I think the last point that he makes, and it's really an important one, um, and Tony is in the position of hiring people all the time in his office, is higher education institutions should revise practitioner job descriptions, hiring and assessment procedures to permit, encourage, and even expect practitioners in selected positions to engage in the scholarship of uh, internationalization so that when someone applies for these jobs, they realize they're only going to be competitive if they really have a serious at least, again, appreciation and understanding and uh, and and uh, skills to, to utilize the research, if not produce it, but at least to use it to inform their work. So I think those are some really important points.
1: I, I think, William, your, your question is a really important one, and I hope that people listen to what Bernard was just saying. And certainly, in fact, it, uh, the professional associations like the ones he's mentioned, do offer ongoing training and development opportunities, academies, and so forth for continuous development. But the, the, there are, and I think it's very important to mention, such as in Chapter 18, Woodman and Putney create uh, have a chapter looking and, and critiquing existing graduate school education for international educators. Back in the early 1990s, when I thought I would want to um, take this, this profession seriously. I, I, I sought out a master's degree in international education at SIT, an institute in Vermont. At the time, there were very few such programs in higher education at the graduate level for international education. Even in that program, though, it was all very much applied. But if you look in chapter 18, you see that much more, of, uh, many more of these programs are now being offered, such as the ones those two authors uh, are at. Um, including uh, many others now. In fact, Boston College just uh, announced the development of a new master's program in international higher education. And those programs are underscoring the uh, that international education is not just about understanding visas or understanding health safety and security or risk management or program development, but instead they're looking, uh, they're positioning these programs in such a way that they require their students to understand and assess the existing literature that provides a foundation for those types of administrative tasks and i think that's very very important in january i was I had the good fortune to be invited to the middlebury institute of international studies in california the program that dr putney in chapter 18 she directs that program And I was so impressed with the students there and the program itself because those students came at every question I asked, not from a place of anecdote or a place of assumption, but they had a research background. And I thought that was just so important. And I caught myself telling them, do not do anything for me that you can't later position for a publication or for a presentation. And they understood that, uh, it seemed inherently, they understood the importance of going uh, in that direction. So that later on, should they ever apply to work for me, uh, at an or if I apply to work for them, but if they apply to work for me, then, then I will see on their CV, uh, at least some element of their having contributed to the advancement of an international education field. To me, that's a realistic positioning of scholar, practitioner, um, mindset in this emerging professional world.
2: You know, let me let me just pick up on that, Tony, uh, to again hawk some of the chapters in our book uh, that talk about making space for people in highly administrative offices to also get a chance to write up some of their thinking or, or be compelled to write something and contribute it to some of the fora that are out there. David Ostell does this nicely. Um, Uh, Jane Edwards does this nicely in talking about bringing in research articles, you know, going through, taking staff time once a week or once a month to have everybody read an article and then talk about that article um, in in an interesting way, so step away from the, the processing of of the important paperwork that has to be done, the SEVIS documents, the health and safety stuff, the logistical stuff, and take some time out to also look at at least some piece of research and, and talk about it in, in a small group and get some thinking, sort of like a, a seminar once once in a while within the office. Um, and then to have some small amount of time carved out within a job description to, to contribute something to the many different ways that exist in the field to get your voice out there. Um, uh, chapter, uh, the, the chapter by John Hale, for example, talks about, you know, the, the who's who of scholar practitioners in the field, and he talks about digital voices. That's one of the sections. And, um, you know, there are so many ways that people can get their thinking out through blogs, through um, uh, the kind of discussion we're having today with Fresh Ed. Um, there's, there are things that NAFSA has with the Research Connections, r- which Tamara Breslauer runs, and she's got a chapter in the book. Um, there's the um, Forum Magazine by the European Association of International Educators. Uh, Kappa has an educational, uh, occasional e-publication series. David Comp also in this book, who wrote a very important chapter on the history of scholar-practitioners going back, you know, to the interwar years and all the way to the present. A fascinating chapter. Um, he's got a blog. Uh, Rahul Chaudaha has a blog, Dr. Education. Um, Stuart Hughes has a blog from the Australian Council of International Educational Research. Um, You know, there are all these ways that people can contribute that don't necessarily have to be, you know, top, peer-reviewed, highest impact journals, but can still get their voice out there. Mandy Reinig in our chapter has been terrific about, you know, doing a small interview, but then it's online and everybody can watch that. I use that material in my class. Um, You know, this possibly could be useful to students eventually as well, and I know some of your other podcasts will have been very useful for faculty in their courses. So there are um, many reasons to encourage people working in, in administrative offices who might be in these alternative academic positions, possibly not that happy to be in those, where they can still make major contributions to shaping the dialogue and really moving this, the field forward in, 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 in ways that we, frankly, badly need and that we really welcome.
0: What I loved about the book is that you include all of these personal narratives by individuals who are scholar practitioners. So not only do you have the traditional research papers, but you also have these sort of reflection pieces um, that are more personal. And I I just thought this was a really um, kind of wonderful way to enter the the life and the world of these individuals um, who experience both scholarly worlds and practitioner worlds and how difficult it is to to navigate either between those two worlds or to bring those two worlds together. Um, most of the authors, though, come from the US and it is a US-centric book and that's, that's absolutely fine. But I just am curious, do you know if this phenomenon exists in other countries? Uh,
1: this is a really timely question and one that was just came up recently at the AIEA meeting in Montreal. That's the Association of International education administrators and in that meeting there were several people from other countries in uh, most mostly australia but various other countries as well and they asked that question and they had some very interesting insight to say well there are various pathways in the section in this book um, in fact i think we kind of stumbled upon it but we asked each Person to, to develop a sort of uh, a bio and that became into what we called a, a pathway. What was their pathway for becoming an international educator? Or their pathway to becoming a scholar practitioner? And in what we see, at least in this mostly US-based authorship, is that there were two primary ways of coming. One, coming into the field vertically, like me. I started out earlier on in my career, I I sought a higher education, and I am where I am now, vertically. Others came into this profession horizontally, such as from the faculty, or they came over from in, in a tenure position, oftentimes at a higher level than those that came in vertically, hence that glass ceiling we mentioned earlier. So you have these vertical people and these horizontal people, and to me, that has been primarily the U.S or the two primary US pathways but back to these Australians and others that were that meeting they said well hang on but there are these other pathways into this profession and one person uh, an Australian mentioned he said we talk about in the United States about the comprehensive internationalization of US higher education in Australia we are already beyond that we're not even using those terms as much anymore because we are already beyond this a- area of or this movement to internationalize. Now we're at a different place. And if that is true, then certainly the future pathways are gonna be very different than the current models that we have in the United States. And so I think going forward, um, it, I'm hoping that readers from outside of, the, uh, of this country will look at this book and, and, quest- and, ha- and pull some of the same questions that Bernhard and I have, and the authors of this uh, book have done, by analyzing, again, a primarily US-centric topic, uh, but do so in their uh, in their comparative ways. That said, many of those Australians have sen- since written to me, including one just this morning, to say he has purchased this book, and he is doing that at the moment. So l- let's see what happens.
2: You know, l- let me just add to that, and I- I'm so glad to hear that we have uh, yet another person purchasing the book. That's extremely exciting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's very exciting. Um, You know, I I was at a panel this morning, uh, uh, the panel on this book, and uh, Rosalind Rabbi was was one of the people on the panel. Of course, she's a contributor to this book, Um, and she was saying this is this has been the most exciting project she has been involved with for many years. She wrote the chapter almost immediately after getting our invitation, um, because she she had so much to essentially get off her chest, and that is the same reaction we got from just about everybody we contacted. Um, they said, God, I've had this issue on my mind. It's been eating at me. I've, I've jotted down notes, and I've had conversations with people in the hallways at conferences. This is something that that I feel so much passion about. And, uh, yeah, I'll do a chapter, definitely. I will definitely write about this. So we had just a, a super turnout. Uh, clearly, this is an issue that, um, you know, really is on the minds of people, and, and we're happy to have had the chance to put it out there. It's, it's you know, we put out the idea. Now let's see what, what people do with it. Um, and I definitely would love to, as a future project, perhaps ask the same question about, you know, who is the scholar practitioner and what do they do and what can they do and what should they do and what, they do and what will they do in the future uh, to other countries to make it a comparative international study. Obviously, that's my, my own background and, and my interest. And I do think that, you know, a shortcoming could be that, look, it's based on the U.S. only. It's U.S.-centric. But I don't see that as a shortcoming. I see that as the first step toward more research in this area.
0: Well, Bernhard and Tony, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: you very much, William. It's been a pleasure.
0: Bernhard Streitweiser is an assistant professor of international education at the George Washington University Graduate School of Education and Human Development. Anthony Ogden is currently the executive director of Education Abroad and Exchanges and an adjunct professor in educational policy and evaluation studies at the University of Kentucky. Next week, Fresh Ed begins a three-week series focusing on the inaugural Globalization and Education SIG book award. Rolf Straubhar, the organizer of the book award, will conduct these interviews. The first show will feature Irving Epstein, who received an honorable mention for his book, The Whole World is Texting, Youth Protest in the Information Age. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to FreshEd on iTunes, and follow the show on Twitter using the handle "at FreshEd Podcast." The opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not C i e s or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you on April twenty fifth.